From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. So, I am a big fan of all the guests that we have on this show. They wouldn't be guests otherwise, obviously. But I gotta say, today's guest is one of my all-time writing heroes. When I was still deciding whether to go to law school or move to Hollywood, I remember sitting down and reading the script for Four Weddings and a Funeral and just being so moved and so inspired. It's one of the things that made me want to be a professional writer. And it's not just the emotion or the love story, it's the brilliant structure of the piece, the reveals that you don't see coming, that knock you out, the themes, the deep character study of a man at a crossroads. Four Weddings is, it's one of the great movies. Um, The tragic moments are well-earned, the parallels among the characters are treated like damn reveals, like when we find out that Fiona, similar to Charlie, is also a victim of unrequited love and it's got a brilliant resolution at the end. And that's without even mentioning the speeches. Um, Charlie's best man speech, Matthew's eulogy, of course, Carrie's uh, recitation of her sexual history in the cafe, Charlie's declaration of love for her at the end. It's one of the wittiest, smartest, most moving films of the 90s. Nominated for Best Picture in a year that had Pulp Fiction, The Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump, and Quiz Show also nominated. But even if Four Weddings isn't your thing, you probably love some of Richard Curtis's other movies. He wrote the screenplays for Notting Hill with Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts, Bridget Jones's Diary, starring Renee Zellweger, and Love Actually, starring everyone, which he also directed, among many other works. Um, I've seen Richard speak in person in New York a few times, and he's always so incredibly inspiring and just so smart about writing. I actually keep a checklist of writing tips that I find really helpful on my desktop. And truthfully, it's basically just a list of things that I've heard Richard Curtis or Nora Ephron or Aaron Sorkin say. Using one of the techniques I heard from Richard recently, though, that I have on my little list, um, I actually won a studio writing assignment, uh, which I'm excited about. Uh, Basically, I'm just incredibly excited to talk to Richard about that, about all of his writing advice and so much more. Here he is, Richard Curtis. I've heard you speak in New York a few times, and I mean, this is sort of embarrassing, but I've, you know, I've written down a few of my favorite sort of writing tips you've given over the years, just because um, it, it does feel like you have a lot of writing tips. You're someone who thinks a lot about the act of writing. So I wanted to run a couple by you and see if they still okay. hold water, if you're still what using still, I wonder if they still hold. Yeah, that's what I'm curious about. So you said when you need a problem solved in script, you force yourself to come up with five ideas, which is which will unlock the problem. And your example was... What if it's a grandma instead of a grandpa? You still do that? Well, definitely. I mean, I think the sort of in my own memory, the most specific example is that scene in, which is actually, I think people now call the stalking scene. So it's a rather odd example, but the scene in Love Actually where um, uh, Andrew Lincoln appears outside Kira Knightley's house with those cars. Yeah, famous scene. You know, there was an example. I thought, well, he's got to do something here, and it's got to be a big gesture. And I remember saying, well, you know, does he fill the street with roses? Does he fly a plane overwards? Does he do this, do that? You know, and instead of just getting one thought and 
going on that, you set yourself free by having a lot of thoughts. Now, in that case, I just went out into the foyer of my office and got the people who work there to vote on which one they they like most. So, <laughs> really? That's great. Yeah, even when I'm doing smaller things, I often find, you know, the first idea is the obvious idea. Second idea tends to be sort of the same with an adaptation. The third one tends to be very different. The fourth one tends to be very different too, and the fifth one's the same as the third one, as it were. But by the time you've got there, you just you just don't have the terror of the blank page and right. obsession with the first solution. Uh, and I have found that I have found that helpful. That's awesome. Yeah, because I was wondering if there was anything magic about the number five, but it actually does seem like there is something magic about the number five. That's no, the... not really. It's just <laughs> this. I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered to do. Can't be bothered to do six. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that six would really put you over the edge. Um, okay, another another tip. Um, and this one I actually used recently, um, and it got me a studio assignment, um, which I was very excited about. Um, so you said when pitching yourself to rewrite a script or a treatment. Don't just talk broadly about what you liked and didn't like. Instead, come up with 10 bullet points of things that you'd change. And if the executive ends up liking eight, you're going to get the gig. Oh, did I? Well, that, that sounds very unlike me. <laughs> Is uh, that right? So I don't know whether or not I believe in that. Um, <laughs> I can't remember what other hits I've, I've had. I certainly, uh, one, of, one of the things I think is clear, which you might have heard me say before, is that if you're stuck trying to say something quite fundamental to the plot or quite sort of central, um, don't skirt around it, just say it. Mm. I think that's like a really, so this film that I've just written is about a guy who's uh, the only person in the world who can remember the music of the Beatles. And I thought, well, how are we going to sort of say about his crisis? And eventually he just says to someone, um, I'm getting really worried that I'm living a lie. I think I'm behaving in a way that is exactly opposite to how the Beatles would have wanted me to behave, which is what I wanted him right. to say. And in a way, that's what Julia Roberts says when she says, I'm just a girl standing in front of a guy. I'm not a famous person. I'm this sort of thing, etc. like that. Right. I think that's one thing. We often spend our time trying to say, well, how can I subtly and complexly skirt around and express the meaning of the whole movie? And I think sometimes the answer is just say, this is the meaning of the movie, this is the problem. And that's quite a good way of, you know, getting to where you want to go fast. Right. Instead of saying, oh, well, then here's a little scene in which you can vaguely feel that he's feeling badly about it. There's a scene where you can tell that she thinks she's just a friend, whereas he wants her to be a girlfriend. You might as well have two people saying, you know, I want to go out with you, even though. Uh, you don't seem to want to go out with me. Right. And I'm, I mean, I imagine that's the kind of thing that is, is certainly worth writing in an early draft. And then if it ends up being too on the nose, it can always be cut later, but better to have it than not to have it. Yeah. And another thing also, which I think I've probably learned from Woody Allen, is that the other thing is to say, is to do it on the nose and then paint around it, you know. So, you well, just have a scene in which exactly what you want is being said but it turns out to be a scene about somebody who can't decide which ice cream they want off the menu. Right. I so the audience is distracted by other things, um, and yet you're dealing with the key issue. I mean, there, there's a little scene I've just written again in the new movie because that's on my mind, and it's the absolute showdown between the, 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 the couple in question. But half the dynamic of the scene is that they're late. One of them is late for a plane, 
and the his best friend is there and keeps coming in and saying, you've only got four minutes left, you've only got one minute 53 left, and they also haven't had time to eat, so he keeps asking whether or not he can eat some of the crisps that the girl has ordered. So that, that half the, you know, you sort of distract from how on the nose you are right. by trying to be entertaining at the same time right. rather than saying well this is a scene in which i'm dealing with a serious issue and let's therefore only deal with the serious issue because then uh, you you get sort of seen through whereas it is possible to kind of hide your intention sometimes i love that um what's your favorite woody allen movie what's that you, you said you got that from woody allen right well, I sort of feel as though there's one of my favorite scenes at the end of Manhattan is that scene where he has a like very direct showdown, I think, with Michael Roberts or something. I can't remember. And there's a very beautiful framing where Woody Allen is standing next to a uh, a sort of Neanderthal, the skeleton of a Neanderthal right. man. Right. And you sort of suddenly, and it, you suddenly realize that's a very funny frame. And then Woody Allen says. You know, I bet this guy thought that he was behaving morally, <laughs> right. but he probably wasn't. And and suddenly something which was a boring scene where they were really talking about the core of the movie becomes a scene about standing next to a skeleton. You know, it's that kind of thing. That's great. Um, okay, another point. Um, you said when you have a full draft of a script, you'll then go back and do a pass on each character. You'll put yourself in the mind of each character and ask, do I have a beginning, middle, and end to my storyline? If you have 25 characters, you'll read the script this way 25 times. Yeah, I think you should do that. I mean, I do think you probably should do that. You do realize, like, huge holes, and often it's very easy to solve the holes. I mean, I think I sort of picked that up from uh, Mike Newell, who I did Four Weddings With. I learned right. so much from. And Mike was obsessed by... Re he's, he says the movie's basically done by the time you've cast it. Uh, he was so obsessed by the detail of casting. So there was this day when there was a character called Third Vicar. And, you know, it was a very simple character. He came in, he said to Hugh Grant, can I help? And Hugh said, no, I'm in a bit of you know, trouble. Just give me five minutes. And somebody came into audition for the part. And Mike said to me, uh, Richard, tell, you know, John or whoever was auditioning about the part. And I said, well, this is a character who comes in and says to the leading character. And Mike said, no, no, no. Why did he enter the church? Hmm. And so he wanted a huge biography right. and a sort of sense of, of history in a character who only had four lines. <laughs> right. And right. you suddenly realize that every actor is going, as far as they're concerned, they're the most important person in their world. Right. So if you can reread the script and see, and I still do this all the time, you know, in the new film, there's, you know, the leading character's got parents, and the parents are very useful for three jokes at the beginning of the film, but then I put in a little scene at the end of the film where they come in and they express all their sort of pride and you should be slightly heartbroken about the fact that he's deceiving them. And so there's a certain sort of sorrow in that, and a certain depth and a certain dignity to the characters. And that was only a question of tweaking a little scene. But I do think that if you can do that, one, you'll just write you know, four or five good moments. But secondly, you'll also satisfy the people who are playing the parts that you've genuinely got something to sort of say to them and they've got something to get their teeth into. Right, yeah. It just sort of creates a world that's more like our world because, of course, in the real world, everybody has 
you know, has a whole story. I love that. Yeah. And, and that's just incredibly smart in terms of not only in terms of casting and what you're saying, but also just, I think a lot of times we put all of our emphasis on the hero of the story, the protagonist of the story. And if there's an antagonist, we often just think of them in relation to the hero. And this, as you say, allows them to be a full, a fully fleshed out, fully dimensional human. Well, um, and indeed, that's what we've all got to watch out. I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm, as it were, I'm at the end of my curve. But we've all got to watch out with those issues, particularly with sort of men and women. Someone told me yesterday that there is no conversation between two women in the whole nine hours of the Lord of the Rings films. (laughs) Is that right? And there's some amazing actresses in those with Kate Blanchett. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, and whatever that test is, the Bechtel test or whatever it is, where you say, was there any scene in the movie where two women have a conversation which isn't about a man? Uh, And so I think all of that's very important too, you know. Just go over and check that you are thinking things through from different perspectives. Um, Awesome. One more. Um, You said, do when you're um, rewriting a script, do one day on plot, one day on scenes, one day on comedy, one day on relationships, and one day on character. Put it back together, and it's better. Do you still do well, that? Well, that may be a sign that I'm a bad writer. So <laughs> Why? That's quite funny, isn't it? I don't know whether or not that's like that would reveal that I'm no good. <laughs> no, you um, made an analogy but, to recording sessions. Yeah, I mean, who knows? But that is what that is helpful for someone like me um, because it is very easy. One of the things with, you know, romantic comedies, let's say, is, and generally I feel I've sort of fallen a bit more into this when, as I've got older, is that, you know, they're not as funny as they should be. Because you think, oh, well, this is the scene where I've got to establish this, and this is the scene where this happens. Right. Now we're at the serious end, and now his heart's got broken. And you suddenly realize you've kind of told the whole story of the thing and it all feels right, but there are, you know, the sufficient number of funny lines or actually funny scenes or anything like that. Um, and then all that process, like when I say character, that's what we've just spoken about. You've got to try and make sure that this character, the person's got a sister, the person's got a friend, is that friend actually interesting? If you spend a whole day looking at character, you'll say, well, fuck, look, that person's got a boss and the boss says nothing at all. So I do find it helpful to break things down a bit like that because it is very easy to sort of get a shape to a scene and you never mess with that shape because the shape of the scene is right. But if you're in fact focusing on be it character or jokes or plot or something in that scene, you might kind of break it more and more happily. You've got an excuse for messing up something which is sort of working. So I have found that a very useful little little trick. All right. I think you're four for four. I think you're still using all of this. I think that's a good sign. Um, I asked you if if there was a scene from your work um, that we could play and then talk about a little bit from a craft perspective. Uh, And I was very excited. You picked um, a scene from Four Weddings. Um, In this scene, which we're about to hear, Hugh Grant's character, Charlie, Uh, and his friend Tom, played by James Fleet, take a walk after the funeral of one of their close friends. Um, For people who haven't seen the movie, you know, at this point, Hugh Grant is, you know, his character is paralyzed by fear of commitment, which is exacerbated by all the weddings that he's been going to recently. It doesn't really need much setup other than that. So let's play the clip, and then uh, we'll briefly talk about it. Oh, Charlie. Yeah. 
Yeah, that'd be grand. Never felt like that. I mean, you know, something vaguely similar. For Jilly, when I was young. Jilly? Labrador. Yes, it's odd, isn't it? All these years we've been single and proud of it, we never noticed that two of us weren't to all intents and purposes married all this time. Traitors in our midst. You know, in a way, I think death is hardest for the parents, don't you? I hope I die before my children. Tom, that's one thing I find really, uh... Well, I... It's your, t it's your total confidence that you will get married. I mean, uh, what if you never find the right girl? Sorry? Surely if that service shows anything, it, it shows that there is such a thing as a perfect match. You know, if we can't be like Gareth and Matthew, then uh, maybe we should just let it go. Some of us are not going to get married. Well, I don't know, Charlie. The truth is, I, unlike you, I... I never expected the Thunderbolt. I always just hoped that, that I'd meet some nice, friendly girl. Like the look of her. Hope the look of me didn't make her physically sick. Then pop the question and um, settle down and be happy. It worked for my parents. Well, apart from the divorce and all that. I'll give you six months at the outside, Tom. Huh. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe all this... Waiting for one true love stuff gets you nowhere. Oh, I love that scene so much. Do you remember writing it at all? Well, no. I mean, my, my point about picking that scene is that, um, you know, writing is sometimes very hard and deliberate and problem-solving. I think when I started writing, I thought there was a kind of, once you had an idea, God rewarded you by... Um, it being it working, and um, you know sometimes that just doesn't happen, and you find that you've created a sort of scenario or a sequence of events that don't actually quite work. And I remember getting to that bit of the film and realizing that, which as I sort of plotted it out, but realizing that for Hugh to have attended the funeral of Gareth, heard what John Hanna says, and then for us to cut to him clearly marrying the wrong person. Mm, right afterwards. Didn't make yeah. any sense. Yeah. So the structure of the film didn't actually make any sense. It was like a fatal flaw. Now, I could have just had him do it, and you would have thought, fine, but there's a little thing in you. You've got to say, well, if if you cut the rope of, I often think of writing movies as like pulling an audience in on a rope. And if you cut the rope, if you give them something that's out of tune, that doesn't make sense, that's illogical, then you lose them. They fall backwards. You've got to pick up the rope and tug them all back in again. It just takes twice as much effort. And so in the back of, as I got to that bit in the movie, and I thought I was doing well. I just remember thinking, oh God, this doesn't really work. This intelligent person You've learned the whole lesson of the movie. Love is a true thing. It really exists. There is a perfect person for someone. How can I get him then to have made the wrong decision? Right. And so I genuinely, and, and it, it was, it, I suppose what I'm saying is be honest where you failed 
and then really try hard to solve it. Not a co- you know, what you mustn't do is think, oh, I think the audience will fall for this. So I can pull the wool over their eyes or something. You've got to satisfy your own standards. Right. So I genuinely was, I was out writing abroad. I think we were on some kind of holiday or we'd gone away to finish the movie. And I tried everything. I, I wrote a scene where he was talking to Carrie, to Andy McDowell's character. I wrote a scene where he was talking to Kristen Salt Thomas's character. I wrote all of them going out to dinner after the funeral, and they all talked about it, and all of them failed. I, I just couldn't make it work. And then, I almost like fifth in the list, I got to him talking to James Fleet's character, and then a little bit of magic happened because what happened is James, the advice that James gives is completely wrong. Right. He's the stupidest character in the film, <laughs> but he's the nicest character in the film. So that it seemed to be right. It was, it was good advice. It was loving advice. It was sweet advice. It just was wrong. Um, and that, and suddenly it all made sense. You could, cause you sort of thought, Oh yeah, that's delightful. And Oh Yeah that maybe you can find love with it being a bit chaotic and it's not necessarily right. So I just think of that as an example where I tried to be as rigorous as I could. I investigated every option. And then in the end, as it were, the writing gods gave me the gift of it being right with one character. But every other version I wrote, as you talked about the issue with the person, it became clearer and clearer that he had to wait and find the perfect person, which was the opposite conclusion to the one that I needed to happen in the film. So, I, I mean, in a way, that's just me talking about rigor and about really trying not to pull the wool over your eye, the eyes of the audience because you can. You know, it's got to genuinely convince you. Right. I mean, I mean, that's just, I love that, that that sort of really beautiful scene that a lot of people remember from the movie was simply a, a way for you to create a reasonable transition between the funeral and Charlie getting engaged to Duckface. Um, that's so great. <laughs> exactly. But then, you know, this is the thing about the layers of movie making. I wrote that scene and then I would have done just what I said to you I do, which I would have gone back and put in some jokes. So I put in a joke about a dog and a joke about <laughs> right. his parents being divorced and everything like that. You know, I did my joke bit and then Mike Mule did this extraordinary thing because I thought this was all going to take place in a very sort of bucolic field. Mm-hmm. And then he set that scene on this sort of strange backwater of the Thames with a horrible factory in the background right. and everything, which gave it a slightly sort of mature feeling rather than a sort of dreamy feeling. Right. So once you've got it, then you just try and do the layers to, in a way, hide the, you know, hide the architecture and make it a real, a real thing. I love that. And it's also, I think, it, if I'm remembering right, it's, it's the only real scene that these two characters have together. You know, they're, they're in groups together throughout the rest of the movie. But it's so great to put these two characters with such differing sort of worldviews up against each other. Yeah, well, that is quite a fun thing. I mean, I'm a very, very, um, and again, this may show I'm a bad writer. I'm a fast writer. So, um, you know, what I often do or used to do when I was writing more is I would write 20 or 30 pages of dialogue a day. I would just oh sort of say to myself, how do these people talk to each other? So in no expectation that it would be in the movie, I would have written 
um, Hugh's character talking to Charlotte Coleman's character around the house, you know, hmm. about having breakfast, about what they were going to do that day and everything. And then as you write that, you suddenly think, oh, the funny bit about them may be this, that actually he loves her and treats her like a sister or uh, she talks in a different, you know, cadence to him. And so, so in amongst that stuff, you, you sometimes find a uh, little bit. So I would have at some point written Hugh talking to James a lot, and then I've got that information stored away so that when the proper scene happens, I kind of know how they how they chat rather than only knowing what I want them to say. Uh, that's so cool. At, at what part of the process do you do that? Do you do that while you're working on the outline or before you even start, or when does that come? No, quite. I, I, I sort of, and by the way, I don't do treatments because I think they're, they're, they're definitely. They're the death of things. But um, it would be, you know, in the middle period when you're starting to say, well, how, you know, you, when you start to write important scenes, you realize the important scenes are between those two people. I would then sort of take a day off and just let those two people talk to each other. Oh, that's so cool. And you just, you, you let them talk for, you know, whatever they want to talk about and you'll just write reams and reams and you won't show yeah. it to anybody? No. Nah. Just for you. No, I mean, the, the, I, I, I think I worked out that on Notting Hill, I wrote 3,000 pages and the script is only oh my God. 120. Wow. Yeah, I've heard David Mamet uses the 10% method where he writes 10 pages for every page that gets uh, produced. But that is even, <laughs> that's an even greater percentage. That's incredible. We've kept you for a while here. Um, this has been so fun. Just before we finish up, I do. I want to just ask you about a little bit about your work habits. You say you you're not writing as much right now, um, but when you do write, do, do you write first thing in the morning? Are you writing all day long? Do you take breaks? How do you uh, how do you organize a writing day? Um, <laughs> well, the best writing days, and increasingly, I've had to slightly take myself out of life in order to in order to write. Um, but the best writing days are days when you've got the whole day. Yeah. So I've never particularly been able to organize myself around like you've got a morning. Um, because the great joy of being a writer and of a writing day is how you can waste right. eight right. hours and still write for eight hours. Right. <laughs> um, you know, so that's the bliss for me when I wake up at, you know, 10 or nine or something. And then it's an hour and a half before I start. And then you can write for two whole hours or three from 10.30 to 1.30. And yet, even if you've got nothing good done, you then look out, you've got a massive amount of time to go on writing. So you right. take an hour off for lunch and then you think, fuck, I've got from two till 6.30 before something good comes on the TV. Right. And so you just write in that bit. Um, and then if you're actually having a good day, then you, you can go on till 8.30, have a bite to eat and work on from... 9.32, 12, you know, there's all the time. I love having all the time in the world. Um, that's my perfect writing situation. Um, I, I've, particularly when I had younger children, I did that less. Um, and it had to be more rigorous and write from sort of 10 till right. 6. And then that was just a question of sort of trying not to be distracted during that time. You right. know, not doing your emails if you possibly can, not answering phone calls. But I think it's very much I've had to say to myself, writing days and not writing days rather than half and half. That's interesting. And what, when it is a writing day, do you try to stay off the internet? Or is it not as much of a distraction for you? Twitter and whatever oh. other, social media or whatever. 
no, I suppose I'm pretty bad, but not as bad as some people. And I'm very obsessed by playing music while I write. Oh, really? Except what do you play? When I just like pop music, just all the time. So, except when I get really stuck, when I have to have silence and I, you know, get away from my computer and get a pad and write down, you know, he is this, what happens next kind of stuff. Uh, I just endlessly play music to probably because a lot of my films have been sort of about sort of cheerfulness and love and delight. I, you know, I find early Beatles pop music. I did listen to Mariah Carey singing All I Want for Christmas is You the whole time I was writing Love, actually. Um, you know, sometimes you'll get an artist. When I was writing Nothing Hill, there's a guy called Ron Sexsmith, who I was very keen on. It's just something about the mood and tone of, of his first album that I wanted to get into the film, even though I didn't use it in the film. <laughs> so, in a way, that's my distraction. I'll finish writing a scene, I'll realize I'm no longer listening to a bit of music, and instead of going online to read the news, I go down, pick another song, and then get on with it again. So I think that's perhaps been a lucky break for me, that music is my distraction, and it's also my sort of support. But could you have written a scene like the one we heard between um, uh, Charlie and Tom while listening to upbeat pop music, or does the music sort of need to reflect the tenor of the scene? I think it needs to reflect it a bit, yeah. So the whole of Anything Serious in Notting Hill was written to a song called Downtown Train, which was written by... Tom Waits, and then there's a very beautiful version by Everything But The Girl. I literally started on a loop because I just sort of implied the slight complexity of how I wanted Hugh and Julia to be. So hmm. yeah, it, uh, it, it's kind of... But often the music is needed just to re-cheer me up, you know, because writing's quite a lonely yeah. and gloomy thing. And, and you do need a bit of the proclaimers to... Right. right. And you, you don't mind, you'll just play a song on a loop. You, you don't mind hearing it over and over and over again. No, no. Yeah. And I've got, you know, I listen a lot to the Waterboys. They're my particular obsession. And, and huh. they're sort of, if you, if you get their 10 best songs together, it's like an entire lifetime of emotions in an hour and a half. And so that keeps me going. Oh, that's great. Um, okay, and then um, uh, the last thing, um, I asked you for a clip of someone else's work, something not written by you um, that you might yeah. want to uh, play and then talk about. And so we can actually just play this um, going out um, and say goodbye to you. But first, I wanted to ask a little bit about why you chose it. And the clip is from um, the movie Spies Like Us, which is written by Dan Aykroyd and Lil Gans and Babalu Mandel. Um what made you want to pick this scene? Babalu Mandel, because he's, that's interesting, because he yeah. wrote um, two of my favorite, he wrote Parenthood and Splash, didn't he? Oh, are those, are you a big Ron Howard fan? Uh, I love those two movies. Yeah. I mean, they're both fantastic. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, yeah, look, oh, look, in a way, this is a joke, even though I do think it's a completely sublime bit of comedy, but I think the reason why, as a writer, I so love this is I just imagine what it must have looked like in the script. And <laughs> once you thought about it, just the joy that when you've got an idea and it plays itself out. So, you know, instead of having to think of new things for people to say, instead of having to do different jokes, he got his joke. And this must have, this must be four pages of script. And in the four pages of script, there's really only one word. Right. Um, right. So to that extent, I'm both envious 
of of the brilliance of the comedy, but also jealous of the moment that person thought of it and then uh, must have written it down and felt, oh, I've done a great day's work here. I've written a classic scene, but all in fact is he'd written the word doctor 78 right. times in a row. Right. Yeah, there is something beautiful about uh, about that. Um, all right, well, we're going to play that going out. Um, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Not at all. It's a pleasure. And it does remind me that I was a writer once before <laughs> I became a political campaigner. <laughs> uh, did you see the trailer? The trailer for my new movie went up today. I saw that. Yes. How do you feel about it? Are you? How do you feel about trailers in general? Do they represent your movies well, do you think? Well, it's always a tricky relationship. Um, yeah. A poster's even harder. Um, you know, a picture not from the film, right. with words not from the film. Um, but I've never been so aware of, I think time's moving by. I've never been so aware of the, I've got more people sort of getting in touch with me about the trailer. I don't remember that ever happening before. Oh, wow. But I, I suppose it was because trailers used to go up in cinemas and then very few people would see it, you know, people would see it over a month. Whereas now people do look at trailers online. So it's been a new experience. I've, you know, 20 friends have written to me and said, wow. I saw the trailer, which I don't remember ever before. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're really pushed on like vulture.com and a, a bunch of sites people just go to regularly now. Yeah. They, they yeah. put trailers I don't trailers know. I definitely go to, I go to trailer addicts and I choose yeah, movie trailers and everything like that. In fact, it was a disappointment for me today because I went to one of my sites in the, in the hope of seeing a new trailer and all I saw was my own dodgy one. <laughs> um, do you ever uh, try to get involved and tell the people oh, yeah, who are no, making I the trailers? Very, I, get, I mean, look, this you is do. a bit different because this movie is directed by Danny, but I, I got very, I've always got very involved in them. I think the big thing is to try and make sure that the jokes in the trailers are are actually still read as jokes because it's very easy to take what is a joke at 17 seconds to th- and to think if you cut it down to seven, it will still be a joke and it isn't. So mainly my job has been to just try and slow the trailer people down a tiny bit. But do you also worry about um, giving away your best jokes in the trailer so that they won't land when people go see it in the I, theater? I, I, I think with the times, I don't care so much anymore. Right. Okay, good. Um, well, that's exciting. I'm going to go watch it right now. I haven't watched it yet. Well, um, yeah, you can you can text me. Okay. <laughs> All uh, right. I'm trolling. to talk to you. Thanks again, Richard. You too. Okay. Bye. God bless. Bye. Sorry, interjecting back here um, to go back to the clip for Spies Like Us. Um, it doesn't need much setup, but you're going to hear Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd as extremely underqualified foreign service agents. They're on a mission here. They're walking into a tent, and they meet half a dozen doctors. So we're going to play the clip as we go out. I'm Hadley, internal medicine. And Dr. Lafong, communicable diseases. Dr. Boyer, bacteriology. And Dr. Stinson, Marston, and Gill of the Northampton Trauma Institute. And Dr. M. House of the Zurich Relief Fund. These are our newly arrived surgeons, Doctors Trowbridge and Greenbaum. Doctor? 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 And Doctor. Well, we miss anyone? Why don't you gentlemen relax? The tribe's planning a raid on a Soviet tank division tomorrow. There'll be plenty for us to do then. Doctors? Doctor? 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 
Doctor. Doctor? 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 We're not doctors. All right, that was awesome. Uh, I didn't come off like too much of a fanboy uh, or a moron, did I? I hope not. Uh, That's just so fun, getting to talk to Richard Curtis. Um, Thank you so much to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Studio, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Hit me with questions or suggestions at aaron.tracy at yale.edu or on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy. See you next time.